0: design thinking, systems thinking, service design, ethnography, strategy, Finance. leadership, Teamwork.
1: entrepreneurship, Marketing. operations, context, Complex. creativity.
0: Hello and welcome to the Birkbeck Central St. Martins MBA podcast, Shifts in Perspective. Today's hosts are MBA students Charles Augustus, Charlie Kirk and myself, Roscoe Williamson. A quick thanks to Massive Music for providing the music for today's show and we're very happy to welcome our guest today, Kat Drew. A hybrid policy maker and designer, Kat Drew spent 12 years in government working in strategic posts in the Home Office, Cabinet Office and Number 10. At a point during that time, Kat felt she wanted to do something visually more creative, so left for a couple of years to make art and drink beer in Berlin. She came back to combine a master's in graphic design with policy and found there was an appetite for design skills at the heart of government in Policy Lab. Many of those projects were in partnership with Us Creates. And she enjoyed working with them so much, she leapt at the chance to move over to them full time. So Kat, welcome to the Birkbeck Central Smarts MBA podcast, Shifts in Perspective. Great to have you with us. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently up to at the moment?
2: Sure. I am one of the directors at Us Creates, which um, is part of the FutureGov family. We've just um, joined, which is really exciting. So we bring together all the service design experience Uh, from us creates around health and well-being with all the digital transformation experience from FutureGov. Um, But it's been a long and interesting road to get to here. Mm. So I started off uh, 14 years ago in my career in government, doing a very, very traditional civil service role. I worked in very traditional policymaking um, uh, roles in number 10, in cabinet office, in um, the home office. But along the way, got the kind of the bug, I suppose, for curiosity and different ways of developing policy. So really wanting to go out and find out about people in the world, in their homes, in their towns, and not just sit in Whitehall thinking kind of we know best uh, about what should be done. So all the time when I was in government, I was always trying to push, push, push uh, to find new practices, new ways of doing things. And that led me to come to design, which is obviously all about uh, putting the user at the heart of, of what we do and what we design. In the last bit of government, I was lucky enough to be one of the founding members of the Policy Lab, which was a small team, uh, creators especially to bring in design practice to the heart of policy making. Uh, a bit of data science through working in GDS. Um, and then I took the decision after a long time to leave government and work specifically in a, in a design agency, US Creates, uh, which does kind of user-centred design, has been doing so for 14 years and is one of the pioneers of participatory design practices. What really
0: is policy making?
2: Well, wow, that's a big question. So a policy, gosh, I mean, that can range from... So a policy essentially is a kind of a government um, intention about how something is done, and it can range from the smallest thing. So it can range from the amount of benefits that a, uh, a widow is paid um, on a weekly basis, all the way through to whether we should go to war or not, or whether we should leave the EU or not. So from the smallest decision to the biggest decision, and essentially it's a government's kind of rule, which will set uh, uh, will set a kind of intention about what will follow. And the way that you design a policy in the kind of 12, 14 years that I've been in government or was in government, has changed, I think, dramatically So it started, you know, you always start with kind of research about what the problem is and then you might come up with a a solution and then usually you would announce a solution in a strategy and it would be written down. And as user-centred design and design practices, design thinking came more into government, that has shifted. So now it is much more about not just researching with kind of desk research and with what the data says, but about going out and speaking to people and um, experiencing the lives of the people um, who are kind of experiencing problems that you're trying Mm. to fix. So it might be homelessness or kind of health problems.
0: So how long ago do you think that shift started to happen? You know, that shift towards a more user-centred way of thinking?
2: Yeah, so I think slowly over the last 10 years, Right. I think. So kind of when I started in government, uh, we would definitely do research with with. With users, but we would, we would definitely commission a research organisation outside government to do it. It wouldn't be normal practice for a civil servants mm. to go out and spend time with people, understand their, um, their needs. We would just commission a separate user, a, a report, and when it would come back to us, it would come back to us in a written, you know, Times New Roman, size 12, a written report, and it never gave any kind of real flavour about the emotions, the experiences, the motivations of the people that we were essentially employed to, to serve. And um, one of the, and I was always kind of much more keen to do that. And one of the things that, um, one of the first projects I did actually, so I I started in the the civil service on the Fast stream, And after the first year was so upset with kind of what I was doing, I left and joined IPPR, which is a think tank. And there got the opportunity to experiment with, with more creative ways of, of developing a policy. So the project I did was called Brits Abroad and it was, try, it was for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, actually, but it was trying to understand how to improve consular services for Brits living abroad. But the bigger conversation we were having is that there were more Brits living abroad than there were foreign-born people at the UK. And, and then, less than now, but still then, there was a big conversation about immigration, which has obviously got progressively worse. And um, and what we were doing then, we were doing some... I was leading a project where we were doing some very kind of initial kind of new ways of going out to the world. So we were going out to emigrants uh, in different countries, to Spain, to Jamaica, to France, and spending time with emigrants mm. in those places, really trying to understand kind of their experiences of being an immigrant. Um, and we were using some very kind of analogue data science to try and work out how many and estimate how many people were living abroad. And it was 2006, we were using a blog to try and collect and open up the conversation and the evidence we were collecting and opening it up and checking it and verifying it and allowing more people to become part of that conversation. So that was one of my first experiences with being able to use more creative ways of developing policy out in the open rather Mm. than within the closed um, doors of Whitehall. And then when I came back, after kind of a, a comment there, when I came back, I was always trying to do that. And I suppose seeing that there were more and more places in government doing that. But we weren't calling it design. Mm. We, We didn't have a name for it at the time. It was only when Policy Lab came along that finally I was like, oh, right, that's service design. Great, okay, now I've got a name for it. It gives it more credibility. So I'm not just trying to kind of push against the traditional kind of ways of doing things. There is a kind of a vocabulary which has some credibility in the world, which I can then say and explain things. So
0: that was around 2014
2: was when uh, Policy Lab was founded, and Policy Lab was um, there was a kind of couple of things before it. So there was a a big report. So Mind Lab uh, was uh, one of um, the Danish kind of. Um, pioneer of all of this thing, so it was set up by Christian Basson um, a few years earlier in in Denmark and that was the the first time in the world that you had design brought into how government was doing policy making and Labs lasted, it unfortunately closed down kind of um, last year, or earlier this year rather, but it was the pioneer and it set the standard for other countries to follow. And then um, there was a big commission led by Barry Quirk and the Design Council called Restarting Britain. And there, many people like Hilary Cosham and Jenny Winhall and others were contributing to a kind of um, um, a case for making policy-making more user-centred and bringing more design approaches in. Mm. And in that, it recommended the Policy Lab, which is then what got set up and I was lucky to be.
1: Oh. How do people in government first react to this? Because it seems... I guess when most times you think of government, you think of a quite bureaucratic mm. environment and you bring something which is quite creative, something that's quite user-centred, you know. So what's the initial reaction you got?
2: I think varied. I mean, I would say the civil service is incredibly creative, generally. So people are always coming up with really, really great ideas and there's some fantastic kind of thinking going on. I guess the the... The concerns that people had was something about maybe the language like design is not something that traditional civil servants get kind of um get recruited for. I mean that's all changed now, especially with g d s coming in. There's loads more designers being asked for in government. I think there's um there's a couple of things, so I think um one thing that like no minister wants kind of a surprise. And putting out an idea before it's fully formed is quite a scary thing because what you're doing is you're putting out a kind of a, essentially a half-baked idea, Mm -hmm. a half-formed idea to get feedback on it to improve it so it doesn't fail down the line. But by doing that, you're making yourself vulnerable to people criticising things. And so that used to be kind of, you know, all of that kind of thinking used to be kind of kept inside, kept inside, kept inside until you've got the perfect idea and then you release it. And, and ask for feedback at that time, but you've not tested it already. So that was kind of one thing, I suppose. Kind of um, when we do, when we did workshops with um, with civil servants, and we were drawing things and asking people to sketch out an idea rather than to write down an idea, that is asking people to use a different side of their brain, a different way of kind of knowing about the world. When we're asking them to not read a massive research report but look at a video of someone. Who has got uh, who is experiencing homelessness, or who is taking a train ride uh, with a young family and trying to struggle uh, among the commuters? That is a new way of seeing evidence, Mm. and it's really exciting for people. People really love it, but Mm. they just have to kind of get their minds around. This is not what we've been doing for the you know for thus far in my in my um, uh, in my kind of career. Mm. So,
0: because it's it's quite a stark contrast to the sort of quantitative data that people are used to founding their their actions upon Mm
1: -hmm. so
0: i i think it's interesting how one introduces the idea of something like ethnography to an organization whether that be a a public organization or or a private organization and justify essentially the cost and time that goes Mm -hmm. into it when people are used to such a kind of myopia towards quantitative
2: yeah how can you base a policy when you've spoken to 10 people rather than data, which gives you kind of what 60,000 people um, are doing. And so what I would say is two points. First of all, the data tells you the what is happening, but it doesn't always tell you the why. So the data might be telling you that, um, you know, there's 2.5 million people on health-related benefits, and three times as many people go on to health-related benefits per year than come off. But it doesn't, and it might give you some indication about why. So we know that kind of um uh men who suffer bereavement are more likely to go on to benefits. We know that um kind of income is a massive uh predictor of whether you if you've got a health condition, you go on to benefits. We know that men are more likely than women, but we don't know why. So then you have to do ethnography to to answer some of those questions. So in one of the first projects we did um in Policy Lab that I led, we were combining data science and ethnography to find this out exactly. And one of the things we found was that women uh, were more likely to be in work, but struggling with a mental health condition. Mm. And we would assume that's because, so we were like, oh, well, why is this? And so we assumed it was because women have um, stronger kind of social networks and are more likely to talk about their conditions. And then we use ethnography, which is where you go out and spend time with people to experience it, to understand their lives. We um, found one woman who's a teacher in North London who fitted this profile and from her, we understood that actually, I mean, she had been suffering with depression for four years um, and never talked, to her, um, never talked to her boss about it. And when she got cancer, she said she was relieved, which was incredible to us. I mean, how can anyone be relieved when they've got cancer? But for her, it gave her a reason, a physical health condition to go to her employer to talk about if you do things just based on data and you don't actually speak to users about it, you might fail massively. So to give you an example of that, we've just, just been working with um, Bloomberg Philanthropies who have this Mayor's Challenge, which is a city innovation prize in the US. And they gave 35 um, US cities $100,000 each to prototype their ideas. And lots of their ideas were out of data because Bloomberg is a data company. Um, and in Hartford in the USA, they use, there's a technology called ShotSpotter, which essentially whenever a gunshot goes off, it alerts the police. And they wanted to send out a drone to the area to start collecting evidence immediately because lots of people don't get convicted because people run away from the scene quickly and there's no evidence they did that first of all without involving residents and you can imagine that kind of blew up because in this community the police and the did not have a lot of trust with the local community so then they went back and they did loads of work with the community prototyping what drones could mean they experimented with what does it mean that local people in this area can have drone businesses, is that a way to kind of get this in? And what they came up with in the end, they had, had to pivot the idea, um, the drone, and now the drone, what they ended up was it was collecting, it was giving first aid to the scene quickly to help the victim of crime, rather than to collect evidence.
3: What skills did you need to get kind of really get really useful information?
2: The one project we did was with, um, in policy lab, was with the Department of Transport and they wanted to create a new rail strategy. And usually to create a rail strategy, they would look at the the annual passenger survey, which asked certain questions about kind of, um, it asked questions about price, about convenience, about punctuality, which are all things that we think are important uh, for rail users. The approach we took was to go out and spend time with people who were not kind of um, everyday train users, uh, commuters, but who were using the train nonetheless to understand kind of a wider variety of people's experiences. So we were, um, and we took journeys with them and we took a, a film crew with us and we were doing film ethnography. Mm. And it was fascinating because it helped us empathise with different situations. So I, I used to commute from Kent and also kind of a shorter journey from, from Hackney Downs to Liverpool Street, uh, commuting nonetheless. But my experience of that was a very familiar one. I knew exactly where to stand on the train, where to get out. I, d- I barely had to kind of... I was barely cognizant of my surroundings. I probably had my um, my headphones in. And that is very, very different to actually going and taking a train journey with someone who is blind or visually impaired, someone who has a um, young child in a pushchair and can't get up the stairs. And so these ways of experiencing someone else's world helps you build empathy and actually mm. then has changed the strategy. So what we found, so one story that sticks in my head um is the story of um Gracie, who was a mother with a young child, and she was coming from Chelmsford in Essex, and she just got up to she was so, so stressed, she didn't know where she was going, she got up to the top of the steps and she was just about to get in the train, but the buggy got caught and the train guard said, get off the train. There's another one coming in ten minutes, rather than helping her to get on the train, because otherwise she'd make the train late and the train um company would get a fine. And that was such a pivotal uh, experience for, for me as a designer, but also because we had filmed it, it allowed us to show all the other mm. policymakers in DFT who are all probably commuters, but again, like me, had that kind of blinkered experience of what getting a train was like, to go, oh my gosh, stress and panic are massive. And what's interesting is the survey that they used to make the strategy doesn't ask questions about stress and panic. So that was never something that they considered before. So by doing... M- um ethnographies and empathizing with uh how people actually experience services you can identify other things that you might not ask questions about usually and so the strap line of the strategy changed to creating a panic free journey for all
3: brilliant answer
0: mm-hmm. yeah i think it really keys into this idea of creating um you know thick descriptions and rich picturing right so have you um have you have you have you uh, have much experience of rich picturing?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so you might have to explain to me and to That's the listeners good. what that is.
1: Rich picturing. So how, how, where, how where should we start? Rich picturing. Messy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a visual narrative of the complete system as it is currently. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at different factors from the environment in which the system exists in. Mm-hmm. Um, the internal factors that you might need to consider as well as the users and the processes involved, mm-hmm. you know. So the whole concept is a way to map out a complete view of the of the problem situation.
3: And yeah, and from which certain issues will arrive. As exactly. You, um, mm-hmm. But it really,
0: really is insightful in terms of being able to look at the whole system very visually. I mean, albeit the worst drawing's known to man. Yes. <laughs> but that's the whole point of it. The whole point of it is to to, to get, you know, get your team or your clients, your organisation, get them involved, get it messy and actually visually map stuff out. What, you know, which kind of brings us onto this whole you know, world of systems thinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What 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 do you think about it?
2: Like when you're thinking about a tricky social problem like homelessness or mm. child poverty, you cannot address that with just one service like Mm. a person is going to be interacting with lots of different services there are multiple causes that are affecting a person's risk around homelessness it might be drugs alcohol it might be kind of um like the 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 fact that we don't have enough affordable homes there's like multiple different reasons and so you can't address it with one intervention alone so you have to think kind of systemically and also like you can't uh you could you can try and address the 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 symptom of it so you can give people extra kind of top up loans discretionary housing payments they're called but that's not addressing the root cause mm. so if you really want a kind of sustainable uh solution to the problem you have to look much more deeper into the into the issue um and so i think so ethnographies kind of allow you to do that because you are kind of delving into people's lives and understanding kind of what are the what are the root causes that are affecting things but that's part of the the issue so part part of it is understanding people's lives but as you say there's also understanding the organizations that are involved as part of the solution yeah so these might be the 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 organizations that are technically responsible for the solution so quite often the local authority mm-hmm. um and there to understand not only kind of like um what the solution might might be but also the invisible things around the solution mm-hmm. so rich picturing not just kind of who's responsible but their values their relationships with the other parts of the local council or with the local hospital or with the local police? What are the behaviours of the frontline staff? Are they about um, providing services and kind of housing allocation money or are they about actually supporting and coaching, which is Mm. two different roles and behaviours in frontline staff? You have to think about um, kind of incentives and what are people motivated, the staff and the organisation, what are they motivated to do? So there you've got user and their kind of world you've got the organization who's kind of responsible for it and the invisible things around um the, the idea that you might have but then in a true kind of systems thinking um uh, way you might want to think about well what are the other things in the place that might also be part of the solution so um it might be not just the local authority or the um kind of the hospital who can support homelessness it also might be Local businesses, the security guard and Tesco's, who might notice someone is rough sleeping all the time, they might be part of the solution. So you've got a whole kind of place-based system to, to think about and to, and to draw and lever in resources. Mm. And a really good example of that is um, uh, a guy called Chris Hildrey, who was the designer in residence at the Design Museum last year, and he was looking at homelessness. And I, I do lots of work on homelessness, so this example might come up a few times. But um, he was thinking about how do you... Um, Create um, a kind of uh, a response to homelessness to tackle the kind of um, the stigma that is attached to people who get ho- who are living in hostels, not able to get a job because their address is a registered registered homeless hostel, so mm. they can never move out of their situation. So Chris worked with the Royal Mail. Now who'd have thought the Royal Mail had kind of uh, a role to play in homelessness prevention? But what the Royal Mail have is loads of proxy addresses of buildings residencies that are not being occupied, who could loan their address to someone living in the hostel. The person in the hostel never needs to go and live there. They never need to go through the front door, but they can borrow their address to put on their application forms for employment, removing the stigma and therefore being able to get into employment and then be able to get out of their homelessness hostel.
1: I think that's what's interesting about the concept of systems thinking because it, it forces you to take a much more global look at a problem. I think it's very easy just to Honing just what you think you're trying to solve, but when you kind of take that step out, you realise that, there, I guess, there's partners out there, there's other levers you can be moving. They don't consider most of the time.
2: And the thing is, though, so that's that's part of... So within systems thinking, there's two elements to it. There's um, kind of mapping the system, where you might want to look at the root causes of the issue, and looking at the root causes might then um, help you identify who else in the system might be able to help, You might want to just map a local place anyway just to see what kind of assets are available in the local place and then you also might want to like think about the value and kind of all of the rest of it and the behaviors in that system but the other thing then the next part of it which is kind of think like a system act like an entrepreneur is Mm. how do you activate that system what
3: could be yeah what
2: could be um just starting to make something tangible Mm and actually attracting the system together not through theory but like a practical thing that they can get involved in and by getting involved in, then they can start building relationships mm. and the other thing is to um, think carefully about the value exchange that each person who you want to bring into your system or not your system no one controls it the system what are they going to bring to it and what are they going to get out of it because what you want to do is you want to show them the value that there's more value in being part of a, the whole than there is being alone
0: alongside the um the sort of social innovation side of things in terms of have you had much experience introducing uh, these ideas and frameworks and processes into private businesses
2: mm. I mean one kind of interesting project that, that we've done which is around, which is for the private sector um, is around wastewater and sewage and fatbergs which is kind of interesting <laughs> topical <laughs>
3: who doesn't love fatbergs fatbergs Fat exactly so, there's no one um, in a museum now <laughs>
2: It? It? But you know they they're huge, right? And so we work. We were lucky enough to work with this amazing company called Neuron, and Neuron um, have got this great new technology which um, can create kind of real time um, sensors for wastewater in sewers. And the way they do this is by putting lights down fiber optic cables and using the kind of the the feedback from it and the sensors back from it and the the waves. To work out what's the temperature of the water, which gives indications about kind of like the the height of the 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 kind of the fullness of the sewer, but also whether there's cracks, whether things need repairing, etc., whether there's a fat bug kind of created um, or creating in there. And previously, the way the wastewater companies, so there's 12 in the UK, the wastewater companies used to do this is by someone who's probably about 50, who's probably worked in the wastewater company all their life, who's got a wealth of knowledge, leaning down with their ear next to a manhole. And listening. And the manhole covers in London, if you're lucky, they're 200 metres apart. In the rest of the UK, they are much further apart. So there's basically hardly any data. So this is completely revolutionary. And But what uh, the company wanted our help with as a design agency is thinking about how they can um, make this data valuable for the wastewater companies. And at first, the wastewater companies were thinking, oh, my gosh, there's just so much data. How on earth do we deal with this? There's like two million times more data than we usually get. And so what we did is we went out and spent time doing interviews with people in wastewater companies, people who are in the planning department and the operations, long-term planning strategy, uh, people who are picking up the phone because someone says, hi, there's a sewage leak at the bottom of my garden. It really stinks. I need a, a repair van out here right now. So different audiences for this data. So we were getting a different understanding of different user needs within the um, within the organizations and then helping Neuron build different interfaces for different for, for data. So the planners, the operational people, they wanted the raw data. They want to be able to play around with it, model it in different ways, work out kind of like what their kind of projected demand was going to be in the future. Uh, the person in the call centre just needed an alert to say, do I need to send out a repair car or not? That was it. So by doing that, we were able to support Neuron to show different types of value to the customers. And Now two of the wastewater companies have bought Neuron services and it's scaled. So that's where we we have been working with um, a private sector company. And I'd say, from my limited experience, that private sector companies probably start with uh, uh, with a kind of technology solution opportunity mm. more than a social problem Yeah. first and so our job there is to find the social problem that their technology can be used for whereas in the public sector you you know we've got tons of problems every local council's got like loads of problems but they're looking for to partner with um, socially minded private sector companies to help them solve them
1: it sounds like in doing all of this there's one aspect which is the whole initial research and then when implementing solutions there's also another factor which is around changing cultures and changing mm. mindsets and how do you kind of go about doing that
2: yeah yeah and and in a way like coming up with the idea is the easiest bit like that's the the front end stuff is easy the culture change that goes around it is really hard um and it takes a long time and I think going back to an earlier point, you have to think, so if you if you think about the idea, then thinking about the system around the idea, thinking about the system that the idea was going to go and sit in is so important. So with homelessness, um, which is a project that I started in, in, in government, I've been so lucky with that one to start a project in government where we were using design approaches to understand how to prevent homelessness, which ended up in a piece of legislation that all local authorities have had to implement. It's called the Homelessness Reduction Act and then been working with seven local authorities to actually implement that. And um, at the centre point one of the centre points of this legislation is around um uh making the local authority responsible for supporting people who are at risk of homelessness much earlier, 56 days before eviction rather than 28 days, but also jointly planning with them what both sides can do to help them uh, prevent homelessness. So, what the local authority do, do can do to manage risk, but also what the individual um can do to manage their own risk. And so, this plan um is really important to that. And what it does is it forces the uh well not forces it kind of requires the the frontline workers to move from being a kind of a gatekeeper of services. Yes, no, you can have this extra budget, or we can give you this temporary accommodation. Yes, no, to kind of a coach a mentor like what can you do what are your strengths what are your assets and what's been interesting we've been doing lots of work with lewisham council who are kind of really pioneering in this space and the way we've done it is to involve all those frontline staff in the process right from the start so when we've been doing kind of user research sharing kind of user need with them so you know even though they see people every single day they don't often put themselves in a user's shoes, yeah. So, using personas to help them get themselves into their shoes, thinking, helping them to imagine, you know, put themselves in the shoes of the people that they're um, next to each day, um, and prototyping role playing, uh, with them. And role play is something that kind of um, is is new to local government, it's new yeah. to national government. Uh, we found that there's lots of amateur dramatic societies in local <laughs> national government, but um, but it's not part it of day to day kind of policy making or yeah. service kind of delivery, um, and. And by doing that, that is part of the culture chain. So actually, when I, we were down in um, Lewisham, uh, we were down there and I think it was their lunch break and we'd, we'd done all these workshops, role-playing, and then um, two women on their lunch break were were role-playing with each other. And what they realised, they said, we found out that actually the, 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 the frontline officer always sits on the higher chair than the service user. So imagine now that they role played that and put themselves in their shoes, they realize how disempowering that must feel for the 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 homeless person who's coming in where they've got this kind of mm. uh frontline staff towering over them, asking yeah. them questions about what is wrong with them, what their risk is rather than what are your strengths, what are your support networks. So that was a really good example of behavior, like of culture change where we had been prototyping, like role-playing with them and then they were able to kind of take that out and do it by themselves and actually through that understanding people's kind of perspectives, which is what they need to do in their roles going forward.
3: I think okay. what's so refreshing about what you've been talking about, especially at a time when everyone talks about big data mm. and all this stuff, is that, all of these stories are very human-centred. Yes, you can use the data and there's loads of it coming out, but when you actually you know, use some of these processes, you get much better empathetic results that actually are, are effective.
2: Completely. And a nice example, um, so this morning I was in Camden, not far from the central St. Martin's campus, so Camden Council just across the canal from it. <laughs> um, so we're doing a really great project with uh, Camden at the moment who want to think through how um, they support people to get into employment or into employment that takes people out of in-work poverty and Camden's got like loads of services for um, supporting people to retrain to find employment to kind of volunteer to get that kind of very early stage confidence back but they're all quite disparate, and so what they want to do is they want to kind of bring them together, so it's a more coherent experience for for residents. Um, and we are we're working with them to do that, but we're also trying to think about like think about other models. So in Hackney, we we, uh, helped create a digital thing called Hackney Works, which is where um, residents can go in and they can see what types of jobs are available for them or volunteering opportunities or retraining opportunities. And it's all kind of digitally brought together, so it's much easier. But the thing about that digital kind of provision is that it enables better human conversation. So it doesn't replace the human conversation that is the really important thing for getting people's confidence, trust in the system. But it helps um, facilitate conversations so you can have much quicker. Like you can send a quick um, message to someone. Good luck in your job interview today. So it starts with the human relationship, but the digital. You know, we always WhatsApp. We always use Facebook. Like these things don't. Um, you know, you don't. They don't separate. They enhance your friendships that you already have and you've already started with.
3: Or at least we hope they should.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested to hear about how you got involved with Matthew Taylor and uh, the Fix on BBC Radio Four, um, and just a little bit more about that show.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: because I had the pleasure of going on that show, and you,
2: you, were, one the, you were the winner.
0: Uh, yeah, you did the uh, winning pitch. If I do say so, so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it, it was uh, for me. It was amazing to see the kind of focus attention on, on design thinking for social innovation, uh, a whole show uh, to sort of showcase this process was like,
2: wow. So with the fix, the BBC, Matthew um, does a lot of work with the BBC, and they um, he was having a conversation and they were saying, you know what, actually in journalism we talk a lot about what the problems are, we don't talk about what the solutions might be, we would like to do some more solution-focused journalism. So Matthew said, yeah, absolutely up for, for doing that. The RSA's mission is to spread good ideas. This is what we're about. Um, but we need a method to get there. And the RSA is a big, big advocate of design. And um, so Matthew rang me up and said, would you like to be part of this process? Would you like to use design? Um, you know, would you like to showcase the value of design to the wider world? And obviously he jumped at the opportunity. And... Um, so we we designed a, a workshop format that brought together people from very, very different backgrounds, part of designers around kind of lateral thinking some mm. different perspectives on a, on a kind of age-old problem um, and taking them through a design process. So starting in the morning with discovery, um, bringing in different people's perspectives, bringing in different types of evidence, so a bit of data, a bit of user, kind of um, users who were experiencing the problem, some experts as well, getting people to digest that, refine their problem and in the afternoon, uh, co- like developing and, and prototyping ideas before they were, as you know, judged at the end. Um, and that was the first series. And the second series, you know, the BBC thought it was, it was great. It was mentioned twice in their annual report. We were shortlisted for a Criminal Justice Journalism of the Year award. So it went into its second series. And that, again, had the same ethos of using user-centred design to create the problems. But the next year we went local. So we were going to places like Tetbury in rural Gloucestershire to talk about social isolation among older people. We were going to Birmingham to a school to talk about social um, respons- social use, responsible use of social media uh, in by pupils, and we were in Guys and St Thomas's Hospital in London talking about junior doctor uh, morale. So that's evolved, and you know we'll see we'll see what comes next. Wow,
1: it's interesting taken. In. Something like that to a much more mainstream audience.
2: Yeah, and it was interesting to see how many of our clients listen to Radio 4. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them is the answer. <laughs>
3: it's clear from just listening to you for the last hour or so um, how uh, your brain works is fascinating. But I would say that's quite kind of, it seems like you are a designer. By your very nature but in design thinking it's kind of sold to us as this thing that anyone can do in mm. in business and i'm just wondering what your viewpoint on that having worked inside it now for so long is it something that you have within you or something you can learn what what skills does it require
2: so like i don't think i've actually worked in it for that long i've probably had the mindset set of it for long
3: but you studied graphic design so i started
2: graphic design, but only when i was 28 okay, so uh at school uh i uh was doing very rational subjects uh I was kind of forced to by my father um <laughs> I wanted to do art all along so I had to do at that after school in my spare time, but you know, I did chemistry, maths and sciences at a level and i went and then and then I kind of kind of pivoted on that and went and did French and history at university, but like nothing about design. And um, it was only later that I was like, no, actually, I want to do something more creative with, with, with how I kind of am making policy. So, so I think, for me, it is, the, the mindsets are probably more or as important. So mindsets for me that are, are incredibly important for design thinking, which means that lots of people can be part of this movement, is around being curious um being um being open to feedback and changing your idea about being empathetic which we've talked about um about being humble which i think is a massive um humble and vulnerable actually which is uh kind of a massive change from historically what you might think about in the civil service so not being the, the 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 kind of the lone person who comes up the lone genius who comes up with the idea which actually also in design circles think about Philippe stark or any of these kind of star designers is very much about the individual actually i think kind of social design is about being quite humble and about facilitating bringing others in to come up with the ideas and supporting that rather than being the centre of everything, mm. and being able to say I don't know this, I don't know the solution actually, but I'm going to invite you guys in to, to help me figure it out. Um, those are incredibly important. That said, I do think um, design has, you know, visual design is impo- is an important skill. So the ability to sketch, and that doesn't have to be partic- to particularly high fidelity. But to be able to sketch out something, to be able to make something, these are you know to get off the get off the computer, to get off the kind of typewritten um, format, and to get into something visual, mm. is an is an important skill. And you don't have to necessarily do that all yourself. You could work with someone closely, um, but that just means that you can open up all of the problems that you're trying to to solve. Um, all of the solutions that you're trying to test out with people who are non-experts, which is really what you need. So when we do workshops and we invite residents in to kind of um, co-design with us, the evidence might be some words written on the wall about what the risk factors are for something or other, but there are probably a lot of photos as well. And being able to visualise to get to be able to kind of bring people in um, is such an important part, and I do think that's the score. And I suppose just one other thing um, about kind of, I think there is a bit of magic actually about being a designer. There is that kind of daring to think the impossible, daring to provoke and to challenge, and to kind of flip things completely on their head, which doesn't always make you the most popular person in the world. But it, it allows you to challenge the status quo, and I think a bit of provoca- provocation, a bit of challenge, a bit of like, what if, um, are also I suppose maybe if they're not attributes. They're definitely def- they're, they're definitely skills that you need to have. So,
0: I think um, I mean, there's no doubt from any of us in in the, you know in this room that we've seen the the power firsthand of design thinking. But um, that's not to say that it's without its critics. So. Mm. Uh, and, and part of our, um, our journey on this on this MBA is to, to critically reflect on everything that we get taught. And as part of that journey, we found some some pretty provocative art- articles. One entitled "Design Thinking is like a syphilis; it's <laughs> contagious and rots your brains." You know, have we reached peak design thinking? And where is it appropriate and where is it not appropriate?
2: So I think, I mean, we do loads of capability building, actually, as part of of our practice, and that's really, really important. I do think, I mean, I do think there are kind of, there are moments to do things with people and to bring kind of non-designers along the journey with you, and there are moments when actually you, as a designer, need to just go and design a really, really good thing. So I think kind of some of the limits with co-design is that sometimes co-design can be really, really great and bring in different perspectives, but sometimes you are basically trying to appease everyone Mm. and therefore your idea becomes the lowest common denominator rather than the best it can be. So sometimes with design, you're asking people what they want rather than helping them to imagine what could be. So again, you need to provide something provocative to kind of push people's thinking And that might need to be designed alone. Um, Equally, you know, design is a, a like ethnography, that is a skill. Mm -hmm. People train for years to Mm -hmm. be a really good ethnographer. So I think what you can do is you can, like, build people's capabilities in the mindsets around empathy, about wanting to need to go out and speak to users, about being able to be empathetic with different perspectives, about being open to um, feedback, but there are some certain skills which should be kept precious yeah. because otherwise it all just become too diffuse and and you know people will be able to critique mm. the, the rigor of what we do which is rigorous yeah but needs to be kind of protected
0: who's doing ethnography well out there
2: ethnography well well i would say kind of policy lab um is doing ethnography really well because they have Film ethnographers, so Kyna Gawley in Policy Lab, um, is amazing. Ipsos Mm Mori, I would have to say. uh, Ollie Sweet over there is just one of the best ethnographers I know and is also a regular contributor to The Fix. Um, I would say we are. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We've just done some really great work in Hackney, again, looking at kind of healthy weight management within different minority ethnic groups and really trying to get to the... The heart of kind of why in like how food is conceived in, in different cultures. Mm. Um, and Snook, also a really great um, design studio based in Hackney, they do really, really good stuff.
0: One area that, that seems to be quite blurred and and um, obviously very clear for people who are who are within this, but the difference between design thinking and service design.
2: Mm. Design thinking and service design. So and I, well, I don't think it's too clear, actually. And I don't, you know, service design is something that kind of has emerged over the last 30 years and is changing all the time. So I I go to the Service Design Global Conference um, pretty much every year for the last few years. And it's interesting to see how it, the, the conversations at Service Design Global Conference show how it's evolving. So last year was all about systems thinking. And this year is all about organizational and, and, and culture change and transformation. So you can see how service design even, like when when Mary and Zoe started Us Creates 14 years ago, they were doing participatory design. They were working with users, but they didn't have a a name for it. They didn't know it was called service design. They were doing it. Then that kind of, that came into being. And then kind of, um, then service design realized actually it's more than just designing a single service problems are so complex we have to design across the whole system so now we talk about systems thinking and actually it's not just enough for us to go in and do the service and come out we need to embed skills in the organization so now it's much more about organizational design so it's kind of constantly evolving and i suppose service design and design thinking why are they different um i think so serv- so the critiques of, ser- of design thinking would say it's thinking, not doing. And service design is explicitly about doing and making the thing. Um, and I guess design thinking is more of an approach that you can take to kind of whether it's kind of organisation, organisational policy or, or any issue or any honest. issue. Yeah. Um, where service design should be focused well, on services, But service. I don't actually yeah. think service design is actually focused on just services. No. So, um, I think, so I think the service science probably, or the, the type that we practice anyway, is solution ag- agnostic. So it might end up in a service, but it might end up in a policy. It might end up in a bit of organisational change. So that's why they're kind of, I think, probably blurring together.
3: You strike me as coming along at a, quite an important time here. We spoke about data and now this focus on service design you know it's really interesting to 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 ask where you see yourself at the end of this journey that you've started and also mm. projects that you you'd like to tackle that may not have come under
2: under your Yeah. gosh you know what um where do i see I, well i don't know i mean i suppose i'd still like to be on the edges of boundaries that's the thing that kind of really really excites me so um what I've loved 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 about the last kind of uh six years when I've been on this journey so it's only been six years really um is about being able to kind of span different practices span different boundaries and by doing that create something new in between so uh kind of being a hybrid um kind of connecting people from different practices so they can become hybrids or they can discover something new I think is incredibly important and I love it when I meet other people who have started in one practice and dabbled or gone into another I just Mm. that's that's amazing to me so I'd like to continue doing that so you know it might be that I go out into law or I go out into I don't know gardening or I don't know (laughs) what else but some other you know to keep being curious about other practices that could in some way um help me achieve the things that I need to for people I work for so with with for, for kind of vulnerable people, people um uh, who are in need of, of local council services.
3: Are there any areas, social oh, yeah. areas that you'd like to, yeah, yeah. to get your so teeth stuck into?
2: One, one social area that I'm completely fascinated about because I'm part of the problem, I think, is around gentrification. Uh, in London particularly. So uh, I'm someone who's very acutely aware of um, kind of moving to Dalston and now to Leighton and uh, that change in the nature of the areas, which is undoubtedly good for for the area and for some people, but is challenging for other people. And when I was at LCC, my project was all about um, gentrification because I was part of um, an organisation that um, I helped set up with D. O'Connell called Dalston Bridge which is a hyper-local fundraising campaign um, which tried to take action associated with gentrification, like buying a cocktail or selling your house, and turning that into an engine for social good. So by taking a bit of the money from that and ploughing it back into existing charities in the local area that supported people who weren't necessarily benefiting from the change in the area, so like Hackney Pirates or Circle Sports or Hackney Winter Night Shelter. So, for example, we got all the local um, bars to sell a, a, a cocktail called the Dalston thing and a pound from that goes to the, the fund. We teamed up with Curl Estate Agent, so every time anyone sold a house or a flat, they probably made a load of money. They could get donate between £50 and £5,000 and Curl would match fund that and that would go to the local charity. So I'm kind of fascinated with this area and I think kind of after the Hackney kind of... Um, experience they they realize that they it probably happens a bit too fast a bit too soon, which is why now they've got their um their strategies all about making hackney um inclusive for all and in Leighton where you know Roscoe you and me uh, now live, it's going to be the same change but I think Waltham Forest Borough council is is thinking very very carefully about how to do this in a much more sensitive mm. and considered manner because they've seen what's happened in hackney and so I would love to do. A project and there are there are already projects around that, but um I so one project that I was kind of like not part of um but worked kind of alongside was Waltham Forest did a project to use data to understand who was using the cultural venues in Waltham Forest. So Vestry House, William Morris Museum, and obviously as expected, it's kind of like white middle class people using those venues. So what they through that realize is they have to like make an um, absolutely concerted effort to go out and find out what culture and arts mean to everyone in the borough and make sure what they put on is catering for everyone's needs, not just mm. people who like to go to the William Morris Museum.
3: Yeah, I guess it's not just gentrification, it's homogenisation, which is something that is so sad, especially as we look at an increasingly globalised world. We want to keep our heritage, but we also want to celebrate tradition and London's such a nice melting pot. Yeah, to try and preserve that is a really admirable cause. You think one one thing I probably had was
1: around when you've seen the process fail,
2: or mm. you
1: know, That's where a you got into a place and you were so sure it's one thing, and then either the response of the people or just what you try to do just wasn't rights.
2: At the moment, in particularly in public services, austerity is so much that people are needing to save immediate savings, make immediate kind of um, funding cuts. And what that means is that you can't always address the systemic, the root cause of the issue, because addressing the root cause of the issue will take longer, and you won't realise savings until further down the line, and you might have to invest some money up front. So for example, if you really want to um, uh, tackle homelessness, you might actually have to identify people who are earlier at risk and do more with them. And so, do more with more people rather than waiting for people to come to the um, the council when they're in crisis situation. So that's kind of that outreach looks like initially you're doing more, but it's going to save in the long term. So that's where often we will come up with a problem because the people in the local council have to meet their statutory duties. So they have to deal with people in crisis situation and therefore they can't spend time working with us to do more preventative early intervention work. So that's one way that I've seen, that we, we often find challenges.
0: What's been your favourite book that you've read recently?
2: Can I do two? Yeah. i do a, yeah, yeah. a fiction and a non-fiction. Uh, New Power by okay. Timson Hyman is amazing and I'd really yeah. recommend it. And really interesting. And, you know, like a lot of the things they talk about in terms of new types of leadership are about being humble, being vulnerable, supporting others, you know, all of this stuff, which I think is just innate to, to kind of service design, they're now talking about as new leadership models, which is so exciting. Um, there was one quote at the beginning, one of their chapters where they um, compare Barack Obama and um, uh, Trump and i'm going to get this wrong but to paraphrase barack comes in and says you know you are the change that i want to see like it's all about you talking to american citizens and trump says i alone have all the answers and i think that just kind of categorizes a new way of design thinking and a very very traditional old school way um so yeah so that's that's that and then one book I read on holiday was um, Ernest Hemingway, The Old Man and the Sea, which is a story about an old man who goes out and, and wrestles with this giant marlin. And it was a story about tenacity and adversity and slightly being able to admit defeat and, and come home and start again. Um, yeah, which kind of touched me in a way that I don't think a fishing story would ever touch me. So. <laughs>
0: We hear quite a lot about um, building up resilience in, in yeah. our communities, and especially in the young. Um, and it was interesting, some of the things you mentioned earlier, struck a bell in terms of Carol, Carol Dweck's um, notion of um, having a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And and I was um, speaking with somebody recently, um, a guy called Dr. Brennan Jacoby, who's a, actually a doctor of philosophy, but he does a lot of... Um, Work in uh, in in private um, private organisations to to look at how resilience can be built up in the workplace. But you know, one of the things they we talking about um, there is that actually by by having a having a growth mindset and thinking about um, how your abilities are not you're not born with your abilities, but you're actually you build your abilities. It builds resilience. So, what do you think about resilience in it? in our community, in our country at the moment?
2: Uh, Oh my gosh, like resilience is just the backbone pretty much of all the projects we're doing. Resilience means being able to predict when you might need help and being able to know where to ask for it is as resilient as being able to deal with something yourself. We have absolutely no way of capturing data around it, which drives me nuts because uh, when we look at risk factors around um, homelessness, around unemployment, around child poverty, we can say kind of demographically who might be at risk. We can say um, uh, kind of on a gender base, geographically, um, whether they've got health conditions. But we know from all our ethnographic research, resilience, that kind of mindset about being able to predict problems, being self-aware about problems and being able to reach out to your social network to deal with them. It's a massive factor, mm. but we cannot have the data on it so we cannot predict who might be more at risk versus less at risk.
1: Well, Kat,
0: thank you so much for uh <laughs> gracing us with your presence. Yeah, I really <laughs>
3: really enjoyed that. It was superb. Yes, it was well.
0: uh, it's fantastic. I mean we can talk all night and uh yeah, I think definitely some uh, perspectives in this room have been shifted. So at least. God <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's <laughs> uh, too cheesy,
1: <laughs>